Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. Old power, the power we all know... The power that works like a currency, the more of it you have, the more powerful you are. As a negative version, think of Harvey Weinstein, right? Hoards the power, spends it to protect himself for many years despite this extraordinary abuse. Not always bad, not always exercised by bad actors, but that's, the, that, that's a very familiar form of power. New power, power that doesn't work that way. Power that works more like a current than a currency. So it, it's a surge of energy, it gets more powerful the more people participate. So you can't hoard it, but you can channel its energy. And the, the, the work is to do that. And so that's all about upload. It's about participation. It's about how you can unleash the agency of people in order to achieve your goals. A child activist, a McKinsey strategist, founder of social movement agency Purpose, TED speaker, and co-author of New York Times bestseller New Power is this week's guest, Jeremy Hymans. We start with Australian-born Jeremy reflecting on how the combination of his immigrant parents' backstory and his voracious interest in politics led him to become a globetrotting child activist at age eight. We discuss how his non-traditional upbringing helped him develop skills most children would not, the profound effect on his character development, his idealism and the impact on his life trajectory. We cover how Jeremy's decisions to study at Harvard and work as a strategic consultant at McKinsey were examples of him using institutional power without being institutionalised. Jeremy explains the early origins of his movement building in Australia, his political activation to challenge the status quo called Get Up. We then dive into why Jeremy formed Purpose, the social impact business that builds movements and uses the power of participation to affect positive change in the world. Jeremy goes on to discuss the principles underpinning his best-selling book, New Power, and we discuss how these new power values and dynamics are being used by both new power and old power institutions. I hope you're stimulated by the insights, vision, and purpose of Jeremy Hymans. Jeremy, welcome to the Impossible Network. It's great to be here. It's fantastic. In your fabulous purpose office, or purpose-built purpose office. <laughs> but I should say, you've been the most impossible uh, impossible network guest to pin down <laughs> so there's obviously a story there but it's been it's been a, it's been a busy few months but yeah, i'm very I'm happy sure. that that uh, i'm finally able to spend some time together yeah, so am i so thanks very much so let's dive in we always start with childhood so yes. before getting into discussing purpose and power could sure. you just give us a bit of background on the impact of your upbringing and your quite unique childhood <laughs> yeah so i grew up in australia uh and was the child of uh first-generation immigrants to Australia. So my mum is from Lebanon and so came to Australia in the 60s. And my dad is Dutch and was born, had a pretty interesting backstory himself, Had a, was born in hiding from the Nazis in Holland during the war. He was born and conceived in an attic where he wow. spent the first sort of uh, 16 months, I think, roughly, of his life. And then the Americans liberated their town in 1944. So... The story of that, of that narrow escape, of going into hiding, of why they did that, of, of how they made it, was very important to, my, to the kind of mythology of my childhood, a story that was retold over and over again. And, I mean, that's in itself a, a unique and, and an amazing sort of uh, 
I suppose, immigrant story, the coming together. It's probably an amazing backstory how they met. But could you just give us a bit of an overview as to how you ended up as a child activist? Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting. So I, from an early age, I mean, I think, you know, I think as, as I've reflected, I've gotten older about where this all came from, right? I do think some of it was being an immigrant kid and having the the backstory of my father makes you realize that, you know, you don't have the same childhood where you're just thinking about, you know, what toy you're going to get that year, right? You, you're thinking about the ways that the forces of history can arrive at your doorstep and, and the stakes. And so that meant that as a kid, I, I was, I think, very attuned to that and also became very interested in politics from a very early age. And I think a little bit of it, you know, one way to think about that was like some kids... Most kids like football and I just, I was excited about politics. <laughs> and so there was sort of a convergence of a real interest in that. And I was the kind of kid who from a very young age, I just like watched the news voraciously. I would consume all that kind of information. And so when I was eight, this was 1986, the Cold War was kind of still raging. We didn't really know. Gorbachev had arrived on the sea. We didn't really know yet that, that, that things were about to cool down. And I was uh, fortunate enough to win a competition for, which was called the International Children's Peace Prize. And there was a winner from each country. And the winners would go to um, the US and, and meet. And I wrote a song. It's called Rainbow of Peace. <laughs> and the Can you still sing it? I, I can, but I won't. <laughs> you won't. I can, but I won't. Exactly. And so I, I wrote this song and I was sort of catapulted into this funny late Cold War world of kind of child ambassadors. So as I watch Greta and her incredible work and all of the work of kid activists today, it does. And I'm, you know, much less successfully, of course, I'm reflecting on what we did as kids. And I I was very fortunate then to get to travel to all sorts of places around the world in this period of my life between the ages of eight and my kind of early teens. Who encouraged you? Was it your father or your mother that got you into this? Or was it your own initiative? You know... It was it was very internally driven in the sense that I just found this incredibly engaging, um, this world. And I was fascinated by the issues and topics. When I was 12, I went to a conference of children and Nobel Prize winners. So I had this incredible week with all these Nobel Prize winners from around the world and developing sort of proposals for improving the world, basically. So I came back from this conference at age 12, like talking about as it was then called third world debt and the greenhouse effect oh, yeah. as uh-huh. it was then called climate change and ozone, all these issues saving the ozone layer yeah exactly yeah. my head was full of um of these ideas and so a lot of that came from me um i think was very sort of self-motivated and 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 self-driven but i do think that i had the right values so my father um uh, for most of his career was a documentary filmmaker and he made films on you know, on, on social and political issues. And even though in the family, they everybody would always say, even at that age, I was more political than anyone else, you know, even at age eight. The dinner co- table conversations must have been quite lively. I was quite opinionated. Yeah. Uh, siblings? Uh, yeah, I had two much older siblings. So I think um, that's also part of it, right? I was around older people all my life. My brother is eight years older. My sister is 10 years older. So there was definitely a sense of like being the youngest child, but being surrounded by all of this talk there's there's a funny interview i gave in this period of my life i was in the media quite a bit and i would be interviewed and treated a bit like a kind of child sort of just like a bit of a it was a bit of a freak show thing right like who is this creature who is 12 but sounds like he's 40 because i really did sound (laughs) 
you know, like I was 40, I was sort of, you know, it's, it's all been downhill since there. But basically, this reporter was asking me this sort of this volley of questions like, you know, well, what's your position on the Arab-Israeli conflict? Da, da, da. And then he asks me, he says, like, is there a God? And I sort of paused and I said, uh, well, I'm going to leave that to the great philosophers to decide. <laughs> So I was a, you know, I was a, uh, I developed some interesting skills that most 12 year olds wouldn't, wouldn't get the chance to develop at an early age. It was interesting. So what was school like for the young Jeremy or the not so young sounding Jeremy? (laughs) Yeah, you know, look, I was lucky enough to be, you know, to be, I went to a, a school in Australia in Sydney that was a wonderful school full of really bright kids. Being a 12 year old or a 13 year old who was campaigning for peace and was in the media that was not an easy position to be in you know as you can imagine in a school of 12 to 18 year olds I was fine Mm -hmm. you know this was not the kind of school where you're going to get beaten up behind the shed this is the kind of school where you're going to get people are going to argue with you which which I was okay with but you probably Um, weren't beaten in a debate very often I suspect (laughs) I was I did like my debating I was definitely on the debating team more debating than rugby as you can imagine so yeah so it was it was a good environment that environment for me which is not to say that you know it, it's always easy being a kid that's different and I certainly was different mm-hmm. and you were very aware of this difference. oh yeah but you know I was also very I was at that age in some ways more interested in in adults than people my own age so that kind of was a bit of a distraction from you know whatever problems I was having on the playground I'm fascinated I mean I, I was all as a kid I was really into politics and but I never went beyond me right. Well, I did actually write at one point a letter to the White House and to the Kremlin. Oh wow! In the early nineteen eighty, no, late late seventy nine it was. Wow! And uh, didn't get an answer, of course. Right. But um, <laughs> unlike yourself, I was interested in other things like uh, football and, and yeah, rugby yeah, and that yeah, type yeah. of thing. I actually was also very very interested in rugby league, but that's another conversation. <laughs> but what I'm interested in is how that deep interest and that that network you were building, how did that affect your sense of self-belief and vision of where you were going to be in the future? Did you did you start to carve out this this viewpoint that that's where I'm going to be in 20 years' time? This is mm. where I want to be a politician, I want to be mm. a social activist. What were you thinking mm. at that age? Well, look, I think that it did have a profound effect on me, right, in the sense that if you do those things that young, you sort of it creates a lot of expectations. Mm. You know, you create a lot of expectations for yourself and and others expect a lot of you. And that wasn't entirely a good thing, right? Because it meant you don't, you, I, I was spent a lot of my time thinking about the future because of the fact that I'd done these things so, so young and had some success when I was young. So I would often think, well, what am I gonna be, how's that, what's that gonna be like when I'm in, if I do this now, what will that mean for whatever I'm doing in the future? Not a good way to think, right? So there were lots of personal things I had to work through connected to that that trap, right? But I did, but there were things that I always knew that I wanted to kind of hold on to. So the thing about that young version of me was there was there was an idealism that was really important to it. There was a sort of a belief that as a kid I could organize other kids and we could, you know, somehow persuade politicians to stop wars or take action on the environment. You know, the same the same thing that's propelling these kids today, yeah. right? This sense of like, yeah, you know what, we may be kids, but we can we can do way more than is possible. And so and even then I knew that even though there was a little bit of naivety in that, that the thing that was important about that was the sense of idealism. And I think even then I kind of resolved that that was the thing that I never wanted to let go of. A sort of sense that, A, a belief in people and a belief in the idea that 
people could organize collectively to take on power and to change things. But I think also just that sense that like you, you just want to be excited about those things and what is possible there, even if other people might call you naive and be cynical. So that was important. And I knew then, even as a kind of kid who was also had a very adult lens on these things, that that, that was going to be important to to preserve. And I And I sort of figured that my life would be in this space, that I would probably spend my life my life was always going to be some kind of public service. There was going to be some kind of public life. I think what changed for me is that I think as a kid, I was a child activist, but I always figured that I would end up leading or, or being part of the institutions. And especially when you're you know, in the 80s and 90s, there wasn't like an obvious alternative to that. So to your point, you would go and you'd become a politician or you would become you know, a diplomat or you know, a bureaucrat at the UN. And so part of the transformation as I got older was realizing that actually I was probably going to be, I was probably going to stay as a kind of an outsider, even though the the basic work was going to be the same. Interesting. So growing up in that period of history where we were seeing a great transformation through technology and the emergence of the internet, you still decided to go down a traditional educational route, but took you to Harvard. Mm-hmm. What made you go down that route rather than shun traditional education and just focus on your activism and embrace the internet at that early stage? Well, you know, I think I had an understanding that, that you know, there's a, there was a line I used in a talk I gave many years ago, which was use institutional power, but don't be institutionalized. And I think what I've always understood is like, these things are helpful. Mm-hmm. So there was valuable learning to be done uh, at a place like Harvard. And that the ability to take that experience and use it to go out later and start things or raise funds that you need to raise to get things going, that these things matter, right? So there was a sort of pragmatism to that. There was an understanding that that those things were going to be helpful to me in building things. And I always believed that I've never been the kind of activist who believed that, you know, everything has to be so scrappy that, you know, it just comes together piece by piece. I always felt like you needed to do this stuff well and professionally and at scale. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that in order to do that, that there'd be an element of, of engaging with institutions in order to get things going. And this was part of that plan, I guess. Right. What did you study? Uh, I was at the Kennedy School of Government. So oh, right. government, public, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Yeah. It, was, it was great. And I, I learned a lot from that. And, you know, I learned a lot from the professors. And, you know, I think a lot of my, that period of my life was about I think, and this was also something that I was intentional about, I knew I wasn't going to be a government bureaucrat, for example, but I did want to understand that lens. Like how, what is that language? How do those people think? What is their worldview? What are their incentives, right? In the same way I did some stuff in the beginning of my career in the kind of business space, right? As a, as a consultant, you know, for a short time at, at McKinsey. It was really useful. How do they think? What's their worldview, right? That enabled me later to try to, have the right conversations, influence, you know, have a better understanding of how you have influence in pursuit of real change, right? So I did that. I did, um, I did the academic thing. I did, some, I did do some work within big international institutions like the UN and the OECD in that period of my life. And I kind of think of those things as like trying on different things for size. None of those suits fit exactly. Mm-hmm. But I'm really glad that I tried them on because... You know, I think about the work that I do now, and part of that work is about this ability to speak their language, their language, yeah. and, and therefore to 
be able to really persuade and impact the people who do have power in our world. So going back to your point about institutionalized institutions and not being institutionalized, clearly the moment that you stepped away from the institutions was with GetUp. Mm-hmm. You're campaigning social justice activism, whatever you want to call it, that mm-hmm. started in Australia. Could you just explain what drove you? What what was the moment that fired you up to, to start this movement? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so in, in a funny way, to your point, to draw the through line, I had this period as a as a as an activist in the pre-digital era you know with fax machines yeah. and all that stuff yeah, I've heard those, that story. Uh, yeah and and then you know in the digital era came back to that and i think that the thing that motivated me was 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 a desire to fix problems that i saw and that felt urgent so the initial impetus was actually the u.s and so the 2004 presidential election, it was very clear that these new tools were being used and explored for the first time. And so I was involved in starting a campaign uh, around the war in Iraq uh, that helped to mobilize a group of women whose loved ones were in Iraq or had died in Iraq. And it was a fascinating period of experimentation with these new forms of organizing digitally. And so and I, the reason I got involved in that is it felt like that was incredibly important at that time with the Iraq war waging and the huge cost of that. So that got me got me out of, at that time, what I was doing, which was something more academic. I'd started a PhD over at Oxford and I sort of stopped that and I, I mm. focused on, on, on that. And then I discovered this incredible world of, of these new forms of activism. So at the end of 2004, the election had not gone the way that, that me and others had hoped. George W. Bush had been re-elected. And at the same time, back in Australia, John Howard, who'd been our very conservative yeah. prime minister, who'd been in lockstep point. with George W. Bush at that time, had also been re-elected for the fourth time. And so I went back to Australia at, you know, over, over the holidays, as you do at the end of the year, with, the, with one of my um, collaborators, David Madden, who'd been at Kennedy School with me and we'd worked together in 2004. And we sat on the beach together and we were like, well, what, what now? And the idea was really to bring that model that we'd seen in the US back to Australia. Mm-hmm. And that was the sort of spark for GetUp. And I think it, it came from a sense that there was a palpable need to do something that broke out of the stale politics of Australia and the inability, frankly, of the existing political parties to create a real movement to counter Howard who represented pro-war, failure to act on climate change, and a kind of systemic failure to really engage with the sort of original sins of Australia, how we treat our indigenous people, mm-hmm. and, and more recently, how we treat refugees and immigrants. That did actually have significant, a significant impact because it threatened the very the core of that, that his party, and mm-hmm. they saw it as a threat to their perception of democracy, that you were these, who were these upstarts, because what you did had such a positive impact in, in terms of generating such a grassroots uh, reaction. Why is that not replicable now in today's world? What do you mean? This is maybe before you were even thinking about new power, old power. But given now that there are old power models using new power values to undermine ethics, truth, what we see to be right, the blurring of what is was believable and, and, and what people will get behind. It feels like it was there was a purity to what you did then that mm. isn't possible now mm. in today's more, let's say, opaque, <laughs> blurred world. Yeah, it's a really interesting observation. I mean, I do think that what 
we did then, the right were not doing at that time. Yes. The right had other tools. I think that's part of what you're getting Mm -hmm. at. Yeah. So the right were doing talk radio. The right, you know, they had plenty of... App, they they had their own apparatus and their ammunition against you. and their own ammunition absolutely the, in Australia it was the Murdoch press very powerful very in cahoots at that time with the government and they came after us but I think that that what that Get Up represented was a, a sort of model that lent itself to the way progressives wanted to organise people wanted to have their own say they wanted to directly participate mm-hmm. and it was organising people around something positive a positive vision of the country a worldview, not just a set of individual issues so um, I think certainly in the last 15 years since we started Get Up you know there's been a bunch of efforts on the right now, no one has actually replicated that model. Mm. If, for example, in Australia, there have been a million attempts at creating a right-wing get-up, <laughs> and they just fail, you know, time and time again, right? Uh, and we can speculate about why, but they... Can't imagine what it would look like. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But it's also true that in the social media context, we've seen many examples of these new digital tools and what we would call some of these new power dynamics mm-hmm. helping to spread and strengthen right-wing populism and the sort of opposite of the values that GetUp was advancing. And that isn't surprising, and we should expect that. But you're right that the playing field in that respect is a little leveled since the very early years where, you know, the the progressives had a bit of an edge in that space Mm -hmm. very early on, but not for long. And now it's harder. So maybe this is a good time for you to do two things. One explain why you created purpose and when you started to think about the dynamics of power between old and new so look you know purpose is sort of was the natural conclusion of my belief that we needed more infrastructure to support movements around the world Mm -hmm. and that these new forms of movements these digital movements could be incredibly impactful but that there needed to be a strategic approach and infrastructure to support them. And, and this connects a little bit to your question, that old power institutions that played key roles, right? An organization like the ACLU here in the US, they would need, they would need to develop this capability themselves. So we started Purpose in this kind of, uh, from the beginning as this hybrid of a consultancy that helps organizations to do this kind of work, those old power organizations, the ACLUs of the world, and also, a campaigning organization and it's a campaigning organization that doesn't operate on its own brand but that launches labs Mm -hmm. on different issues that work across a sector with all the players in the ecosystem to to the point earlier this ability to speak those languages to find on an issue like climate change what's the new constituency that could really make the difference there so are you essentially building coalitions of shared interest groups uh, yeah, but it's, they're, they're not quite coalitions. No? So I think what we're doing is we're creating campaigns, messages, content, sometimes coalitions. We're trying to create models for engagement and strategies. And so what you end up seeing in these labs is a whole portfolio of really interesting different kinds of activity. So our climate lab is, is, is the largest of our labs, and it's working in places like Poland to help organize Catholics to make them an effective voice on climate because Catholics are very key in that country yeah. to unlocking attitudes toward coal and to influencing what is a very 
conservative government or in a place like India, you know, working with and strengthening the ability of folks there to advocate on air pollution and air quality as a health issue, as a way into the issue of climate change. So there's a sort of an ability to deploy a kind of wide tactical repertoire to do a lot of experimentation, including a lot of failing, and then to really scale and sometimes replicate the things that are, that are working. So that's kind of the methodology that we bring to the work. And so what we've learned over the years, in the early years of Purpose, we mo- mostly just, in this part of the work, spun up new organizations. And while that was great, organizations find, are very constrained. They're constrained by their brand. They're constrained by whatever their kind of financial model is. And they tend to just, even the best-intentioned organizations, get very self-focused, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the labs don't work, don't work as an organization. They work as a kind of broker and an ecosystem level player that can also work under many, many, many different models and guises. And that, I think, creates a different set of incentives for the work. And that, that addresses some of the issues that we see in the social sector. I mean, everything's, I suppose, binary. There's a, there's a, a force. You're a force for good. You could argue, well, it's easy sitting here with my own worldview to say that, but there's probably people sitting in other parts of America don't see you as a force for good. Sure. That see, they want to re- re- retain and maintain the status quo, NRA being one of them. Absolutely. Um, do you think there are organizations that have embraced what you've done and are replicating your model and creating their own versions of labs to pursue the objectives of these organizations that might want to maintain the status quo? <laughs> well, look, Following your moves, it's one great game of chess. Possibly. Or go. You know, when we wrote the book, New Power, mm-hmm. which, as you know, is a book about that really tries to articulate what we've learned doing this kind of movement building work and, and generalize that yes. for different people in all contexts. You're starting a business, you're starting a movement, you are trying to create change. We knew that, that anyone could pick up the book and read it. And it's interesting, I was having this conversation with someone the other day, that the if you look at the reviews of the book um, online from users, the, the, the people who give the book one star are the people who say things like, this is a really interesting idea, but like, why did the authors have to have to be so be so politically biased, right? <laughs> and so those are people who, for example, might be Trump supporters, and th- they're reading the barbs yes. about Donald Trump in the book. It's not principally a book about Donald Trump, uh, but we did that intentionally, and 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 I say that because we didn't really want the book to be picked up by climate deniers and anti-vaxxers, yeah. and for them to think this is as good for us as it is for them. We wanted this to be a book that would help mobilize people around shared values, a more open, democratic, pluralistic, sustainable world. And so that that was sort of intentional, mm-hmm. you know, to mark out a little bit. This yeah. is the worldview that we represent. Still a very inclusive worldview, <laughs> I would argue. And, and I think a lot of what we advocate for is particularly controversial or should be. But... Um, but yeah, um, so can anyone use these tools? Absolutely. Again, when you rely on mobilization, real mobilization, real participation, some things you can fake, some things you can't. So for example, um, the in Australia, I think it was the Business Council of Australia, one of the business groups, sort of said they were going to launch a, a big grassroots movement to reduce corporate tax rates. And that's not really a thing. And so, you know, you can't fake that, right? There's not going to be one of those in that way. But but there are things, unfortunately, some very negative values, anti-immigration, racism, 
you know, a whole bunch of hateful ideologies that are pretty easy to mobilize around Background today. Background checks. But although um, the majority well, of people don't yeah, aren't supportive of that. Gun, yeah, the sort of ideology of the NRA. I mean, so striking to your point that it's not the issue in America on guns is not that there are lots of people who support the NRA's position. It's there are lots of politicians who do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 90% of Americans, including the vast majority of Republicans, support background checks and assault weapons bans so uh that's a that's another story which we can we, which we can unpack yeah. <laughs> and we've obviously been quite involved on that issue yeah and that's with is it um, every town every for gun yeah, safety yeah, which, which is, we helped to start great, yeah. yeah okay you've talked at length about the, the book and other podcasts but could you just explain the key differences in the model between the model and the values yeah so the basic idea of the book is two ways to think about power one that you're very familiar with, one maybe less so. Old power, the power we all know, the power that works like a currency. The more of it you have, the more powerful you are. As a negative version, think of Harvey Weinstein, right? Hoards the power, spends it to protect himself for many years despite this extraordinary abuse. Not always bad, not always exercised by bad actors, but that's, the, that, that's a very familiar form of power. Apple being another one. Apple being another yeah. one, which we can talk about. Yeah. New power, power that doesn't work that way. Power that works more like a current than a currency. So it, it's a surge of energy. It gets more powerful the more people participate. So you can't hoard it, but you can channel its energy. And the, the, the work is to do that. And so that's all about upload. It's about participation. It's about how you can unleash the agency of people in order to achieve your goals. And so the way we then break that down, and we originally do this in Harvard Business Review, is we say, you can think of new power and old power in terms of models and values. So if you're thinking at the level of an organization, you're an organization, is your business model, for example, based more on the dynamics of mass participation and peer coordination? Airbnb would be a business model that relies on that, or Facebook even. Or is your model based more on we, you know, we have the sole license to this and you know, it's based on scarcity and exclusivity and top-down uh, dynamics? But then there's values. So I mentioned Facebook as a new power model, but its values are not new power, right? And so what we do is we break down these two mindsets, the old power mindset and the new power mindset. And we talk about that along different dimensions, attitudes toward institutions, uh, toward collaboration and, and competition as values, toward transparency and confidentiality as values, affiliation, expertise. And what we see is a pattern here where there are these different mindsets, right, um, that are associated more with old or more with new power. Mm-hmm. And so when you put those together, you can start to have quite interesting conversations about organizations and leaders and what combination of these they exhibit. And also about the kind of change that organizations and leaders might be seeking or pursuing. I've got two questions or one observation on that. I can't remember if it was Anand Giordaris or if it was Seth Godin, but I, at one of the event I went to, they said, you have to stop calling yourself the resistance. You're not. You're the trend. The resistance of the people in power, which is really interesting. Mm, that is clever. If we think about the arc that we're on of time, but clearly we're at a, a point in history that things may be changing. So one is could we be seeing the end the last vestiges of old power institutions trying to hold on and as we see like as paul mason the writer from the guardian talks a lot about the future of post-capitalism that maybe the very nature of government 
institutions, countries, how in, in a, let's say, a, a, a climate disaster world, we start to see the breakdown of traditional societies and the emergence of something new happening, which might be built around new power structures and values taking over. Have you any sense as to where we're going? Or are we seeing a, just a, a battle royale and it will always go back and forth <laughs> between new power and old power? Well, I think that, that there will always be that dialectic, right, between mm -hmm. old and new power. I don't, I don't think that's going to that's gonna change. Anytime um, soon. Anytime yeah. soon. But I do think there's, there's, you know, there's, there's structural trends, right? So if you think about what new power enables you to do, so you think about even what Greta and all of those kids have achieved in the last year. So just the the scale, the speed, the geographic span of that movement, so quickly, all this infrastructure gets built so quickly that the capacity to do that is meaningful. As you start to layer on some systems and models that try to make that a little more sustainable, a little bit more robust, you could imagine whole new institutions and models emerging yeah. that feel more new power, certainly, than the kinds of models that we live with now. I mean, one thing that, you know, you're always told when you study political science is institutions are sticky, right? And so part of the problem with the world today, part of the reason things feel like they're falling apart is that we have these institutions that were purpose-built for a totally different context. I mean, think about it. The Bretton Woods institutions uh, and the you know, the international order worked pretty well for a period in the post-war, you know, post-Second yep. World War era. They were fit for that world and they worked for a good amount of time. In fact, you could argue they worked better than almost anything in human history has. But there's a reason that they're fraying now. But those institutions are sticky. It's really hard to change who's on the Security Council or, you know, the power dynamics of, a, of, a, of an institution like the IMF and, and, and let alone parliaments and states that have um, whose modes of engagement are now very incompatible with the much higher expectations people have mm. to participate to shape their world to get involved in ways that they don't feel like their leaders are being responsive to so where i'm leading to here is i think that we will see new models emerge i, I do think there are underlying technologies that will assist with that things like the blockchain, blockchain right course, yeah. because the blockchain is all about disintermediation it's all about making us less dependent on centralized intermediaries and institutions so that we can get things done very efficiently without them, whether that's the bank or that's Spotify mm -hmm. <laughs> or, like a, or a big tech platform, or that's, in some cases, some political decision makers. I still think that we're going to need a mix of old and new power. And I think, still think we're going to need a mix of movements and institutions. Okay. And, and I think that's always going to be true. And the, the, but the balance may shift. One very specific question around something I think we all feel very passionate about, which is climate. Do you think that uh, climate can be solved without old power? No, no. In the sense that we, I don't believe that markets alone will solve this problem fast enough, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, you know, if we just ignored governments and just had uh, this extraordinary surge of innovation that wouldn't be enough to bring down the price fast enough to create adoption, to, to unsettle the powerful interests that stand in the way. You know, politics, power, is the principal reason we're in this mess, right? It's vested economic interests and vested political interests. So um, we can't get around that. Those things will have to change. Mm. 
I do think that part of the long-term solution to climate change is going to depend on, firstly, people power, for sure, but also, and people taking this into their own hands, but also um, that ultimately we're going to need a huge amount of R&D and, and technological innovation to solve this problem uh, because we're not going to solve it, you know, on the current trajectory, mm-hmm. certainly not just through the existing kind of market trends, as good as they are, you know, with renewable adoption, etc. Some great stuff came out yesterday over the X Prize, some great innovations. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and so I think that's going to be important, right? And so we're going to have to balance maintaining the absolute urgency of action now on climate, of tackling the fossil fuel industry, of, of taxation, of all the things we need to do, right? We're also going to need in parallel to be doing big R&D investments in the things that will ultimately address this from a technological perspective, even if we fail to completely um, solve the problem politically. Okay. Um, serendipity. Where serendipity impacted your journey, your story? Well, you know, my, my, the, the story that I shared with you at the very beginning was the writing the song and winning the competition. You know, my, my teacher just walked into, uh, you know, walked into the, the classroom one day with this little poster for this competition. And that had a huge impact on the trajectory yeah. of my life. Imagine, imagine you've been off school that day. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I think, you know... Write, it, the, writing faxes And it was like, I think there was only one or two days left to enter the competition. So I remember this sort of scramble over the weekend. If I hadn't done that, I, I don't know. You know, I was... Uh, th- things like that, I think, had a massive impact yeah. on my trajectory. What about curiosity? How does that impact your, your, your life today and the work you do? I think of curiosity and idealism, as I mentioned, as being a little bit two sides of the same coin, right? A belief that something that on the surface doesn't seem possible is possible and, and, and the curiosity about, about how. So for me, I'm always interested in what's the next tool, the next way we're going to help to engage people. Um, and so my mode is, is very much the builder, the starter. I love to start. I love to, I see the gap. And I get very excited about that. So purpose is a wonderful place for me because it gives me the ability to help start a new lab or find the new model. And so there's always that process in purpose of the kind of creation of the new. Um, and that's obviously driven by curiosity. Okay. I'm going to go to the quick fire questions. What principles do you stand by? I'm going to stick with idealism. Huh? I don't, I don't want to lose my idealism. And, you know, like for, for any entrepreneur, I think, you know, tenacity is 80% of the game, right? What hard choices have you had to make that have been tough at the time but turned out to be the right decision? I mean, there's been a lot. I mean, I think um, there was a particular moment in my life in my 20s where I uh, decided to... Be a footballer, rugby league. Yes, exactly. Can't you tell? (laughs) Can't you tell? (laughs) Exactly. So I had a a moment in my 20s where I was like, uh, I felt I had been running so hard, uh, doing all this stuff, being this activist, being this you know, kid beyond my years, um, that I kind of needed to be young. <laughs> and so I, t- I took some time off. I, I, I stopped. I was in the middle of my degree at that time at Harvard. I, I took a year off. I went back, but I took a year off and, and I focused on a bunch of stuff that I needed to think through and, 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 and engage with and confront personally that I hadn't really dealt with. And that's, that was a hard decision to make because it was kind of anathema to the way I'd run my life before that. But it was definitely one of the best decisions that I've made. Okay. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? I think people are 
People are doing that to me all the time. I think when you lead an organization, you know, you're always doing that. So I think about purpose in year one or year two <laughs> okay. and how different it is now and what I've and how I've changed in my orientation on a lot of things. I mean, you use new power and technology um, brilliantly. How do you keep up with technology? Well, you know, as I get older, you know, I'm going to I'm willing to accept that I'm going to start getting a little out of touch. I'm, I'm OK to not be on TikTok personally. I'm OK. Really? So, some, yeah. some, you haven't got a secret channel. No. Some people are not. So I don't think I'm, I, I'll be honest, I don't think I'm going to be that guy who in his 70s is, you know, trying to, you know, be as tech savvy as someone in their 20s. So I'm going to rely on uh, having people younger and savvier than me uh, who can help me, uh, you know, stay on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to claim, I'm not going to claim, uh, you know, I'm not going to claim otherwise. Okay. If you could go or return to one night or one day in history, where, when, or who? Well, I think for me, the the period that captured my imagination was the period um, in the late 80s, the, the, the Gorbachev era, the, the, this extraordinary period where the Cold War ends and all these regimes topple. So I'd probably pick a spot right there. Reykjavik. You know, Reykjavik. <laughs> you know what? You know, it would have been pretty fun to have been... Um, to have been around uh, in 91 during that failed coup against Gorbachev. Oh, yeah. That was kind of yeah. crazy. And that's my, uh, my, in, my period of like fascination and indulgence. The other period I'm always fascinated by is the interwar period. Mm-hmm. Okay. The impossible question we ask is, what would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate study, been, may have a dream goal, grand ambition, been, has been told, ah, forget it, that's impossible? It's totally not impossible. Right. I mean, I think the um, the thing that's so exciting about the new power world that we live in is that, you know, even I as a kid, my ability to shape the world as an activist was so limited. I couldn't reach an audience that was global. I couldn't mobilize people beyond my my city or at best my country. And I had a lot of opportunities to do that. So today I'm amazed at the kids who have followings of tens of thousands of people. They have these incredible skills of engagement, of building community. And sometimes it's tempting to denigrate that. It's like, oh, these are just narcissistic kids, but they're not. I mean, there's, it's power and, it's, and it's, there's enormous capability there. So I think that those things are, are very exciting. That doesn't, under, doesn't invalidate the fact that there's huge inequality that means that, that a message about any kid being able to do anything if you, you know, if you live in a particular part of the world um, or if you face kind of systemic racial injustice and, in, and, and inequity, these things matter, yeah. right, enormously to the opportunities that people are going to have. But I do feel quite hopeful about some of the ways that, that people can, even with very little resource now, they can find, um, a find a way. Okay, um, I'm going to skip the second last question because I know the book I want to give is your book so people should read it but you can maybe tell me after the interview another time what book we should give away and the final one is who should we interview next god there's so many great people I, I think you could interview one of my favorite activists is Ai-jen Poo oh yeah she's amazing yeah. do you know Ai-jen yeah she's, well, I don't know her but I know who she is she's incredibly yeah. inspiring mm-hmm. and she's um, you know a person who's spent her whole life doing really a great mix of idealistic and very strategic work, um, helping domestic workers uh, around the country organize and find their voice. 
uh, and now very involved uh, in the lead up to the 2020 election with a with a fantastic organization she set up with uh, Alicia Garza, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, and Cecile Richards, the former leader of Planned Parenthood called Supermajority. So go talk to Cecile yeah. or Alicia or Igen. Okay. They're, well, they're, or they're all awesome. We'll maybe hit you up for an introduction. All right, great. Okay, that's great. Well, I'll just say thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate Jeremy. And um, we always finish by acknowledging the work you do. I think it's inspiring. I think the work you're doing with purpose is important and essential and gives hope for humanity that there are people out there that are working for justice, for equality, and to uh, save us from people that want to hold us in some old world, old power structure. <laughs> so thank you very much and all power to you. Thank you and good luck with this fantastic project. Thank you very much. Thanks. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.